Hello, my name is Giovanni and this is Social Medicine, my weekly therapy session wherein we delve deep into the issues that are on my mind. On the previous episode, you heard me talk about some of the demons in Biden's closet. And today, I will sort of do the same for Trump. Full disclosure, I think Donald Trump is a despicable man and embodies the worst characteristics of humans. He's a narcissistic megalomaniac unable to form a coherent sentence without repeating himself or showing any semblance of critical thinking skills. Politics aside, the man is a fucking idiot. And it's his idiocy that speaks to the hearts of his fan base, whose personalities reflect in some way that of the president's. Today, I thought I would look into who Donald Trump is and more specifically what he is. You see, I'm going to make an argument that a whole lot of people have made on the internet or otherwise, and that is that Donald Trump is a fascist, or at the very least that he embodies a lot of traits commonly associated with fascism and other forms of authoritarianism. Before I go into the the meat of the argument, I first must go over what fascism even is. Um, Merriam-Webster defines it as a political philosophy, movement, or regime that exalts nation and often race above the individual and that stands for a centralized autocratic government headed by a dictatorial leader, severe economic and social regimentation, and forcible suppression of opposition. But it must be noted that the term fascism is a contentious one, as it has been defined differently by different authors, philosophers, and political leaders. But the general tenet of fascism is that it is an authoritarian form of government and exists on the same spectrum of right-wing forms of government as authoritarianism and totalitarianism. It might be easier to think of it using the finger analogy, which I originally heard on an episode of the Big Bang Theory, which is that all thumbs are fingers, but not all fingers are thumbs. In other words, all fascist regimes are authoritarian, but not all authoritarian regimes are fascist. It may help as well to compare fascism to communism, as they are differing ideologies with a lot of similarities. I'm oversimplifying oversimplifying here, uh, but for the sake of time, I must. Uh, Communism can be thought of as an economic theory proposing communal uh, ownership of property and the means of production, the equal redistribution of health, uh, oh, sorry, wealth, and a uh, centralized government for and by the working class. So in other words, communism is for the many, while fascism is sort of for the one. If there are any history or political science majors wanting to correct any of that, please do. I'm just a guy with a mic, not an expert. But like I said, the term fascism can be a very contentious one, and numerous philosophers have proposed their uh, formulas um, of lists of characteristics of this philosophy, and we will look at some of them throughout the episode, but today I'll be structuring this episode around a poster, uh, which was widely circulated online after being found at uh, the U.S. Holocaust Museum gift shop um, and having connections drawn between it and the Trump administration. It's titled Early Warning Signs of Fascism, and it lists 14 of those said signs. The list was originally compiled by historian Lawrence Britt in 2003 uh, for an article published by Free Inquiry magazine. So we're going to take a look at each individual sign or point listed on the poster and see if there could be any connection to our current president. I'll then let you decide whether or not any and all conclusions I come to are fair. So uh, let's get started. First on the list is powerful and continuing nationalism. Well, it's very easy to see that Donald Trump is a nationalist. His continuing America-centric rhetoric does nothing if not prove that. Uh, The question then is, would the president call himself that? And I told all of the European nations it's not fair. We have all these horrible trade imbalances. They take such advantage, they're not taking advantage anymore, folks. Under Republican leadership, America is winning again. America is respected again because we are putting America first. We're putting America first. It hasn't happened in a lot of decades. 
We're putting them first. We're taking care of ourselves for a change, folks. Thank you. I like that guy, but not that much. <laughs> not that much. But radical Democrats want to turn back the clock, restore the rule of corrupt, power-hungry globalists. You know what a globalist is, right? You know what a globalist is. A globalist is a person that wants the globe to do well, frankly, not caring about our country so much. And you know what? We can't have that. You know, they have a word. It sort of became old-fashioned. It's called a nationalist. And I say, really, we're not supposed to use that word. You know what I am? I'm a nationalist, okay? I'm a nationalist. Nationalist. Nothing else. Use that word. Use that word. Now, I have to be careful with this because I think as soon as people hear that, they might think he is admitting to something much worse than what he is, at least explicitly. Um, there are very negative connotations attached to the word nationalist, which we will get to, and uh, synonymous association with the term white nationalist. Um, here's what the Southern Poverty Law Center says about white nationalism. And it's a lot, but I think it is really important stuff, so please bear with me. Quote, Adherents of white nationalist groups believe that white identity should be the organizing principle of the countries that make up Western civilization. White nationalists advocate for policies to reverse changing demographics and the loss of an absolute white majority. Ending non-white immigration, both legal and illegal, is an urgent priority. Frequently elevated over other racist projects, such as ending multiculturalism and miscegenation. Um, for white nationalists seeking to preserve white racial hegemony, uh, white nationalists seek to return to an America that predates the implementation of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Immigration and National Act of 65. Both landmark pieces of legislation are cited as the harbingers of white dispossession and so-called white genocide. The idea that whites in the United States are being systematically replaced and destroyed. These racist aspirations are most commonly articulated as the desire to form a white ethnostate, a calculated idiom favored by white nationalists in order to obscure the inherent, inherent violence of such a radical project. Appeals for the white ethno ethnostate are often disingenuously couched in proclamations of love for members of their own race rather than hatred for others. This platitude collapses under scrutiny. Two favorite animating myths of white nationalists are the victimhood narrative of black-on-white crime, the idea that the dominant white majority is under assault by supposedly violent people of color, and the deceptively titled human biodiversity, the pseudo-scientific ascription of uh, human behaviors, in this case along racial lines, to non-negligible genetic difference among humans. Appeals to the quote-unquote empirical science of human biodiversity are frequently coupled with thinly-veiled nods to white racial superiority, end quote. The debate on whether or not Donald Trump is a white nationalist is best saved for another time, but I, th I still think that a lot of, uh, a lot can be learned about nationalism from the description of white nationalism, you know? Specifically, I think that a lot of the other negative connotations I mentioned earlier are associated with nationalism, um, can also apply to white nationalism. Words like xenophobia, isolationism, patriotism, and separatism are all used in a negative light um, as synonyms of nationalism. I mean, even just replacing the word white with American on 
the above quote gives us somewhat accurate definition of, of nationalism. And the question here isn't whether or not Trump is a nationalist, because he is, or whether or not being a nationalist is bad. As a humanist, I'm not too hard about the concept. But instead, I'm trying to decide if Trump's blatant ultra-nationalism is a, a sign of a looming attempted fascist regime. I think the wording of that sentence speaks for itself. Disdain for human rights is the next sign on the list, and it's a big one. I think above all else, Trump's domestic policy proposals have in one way or another functioned off the abuse of someone's rights in exchange for what is sometimes a very real and other times a perceived cultural or economic victory uh, for others. I don't think it would be a stretch that, you know, Trump's presidency started and will end with the immigration issue at the forefront. Um, and I would say that his entire presidency was defined by this issue, uh, most notably with the human rights abuses that continue to occur at the border. Um, these abuses were implemented as a, de as a deterrent of migration coming from the U.S.-Mexico uh, border, which included a complete foregoing of the asylum-seeking process. Um, it used to be that asylum seekers, at least to my understanding, would present themselves at a port of entry and announce that they are seeking asylum. Um, they would then be put through credible and reasonable fear screenings to determine essentially whether their situation actually puts them within the definition of asylum. Um, customs officials would then determine whether or not their reasons are valid and put them in immigration court removal proceedings where asylum seekers are able to make their case to an, an administrative judge or in expedited removal where border agents may order their deportation of individuals without a hearing. Um, the Trump administration introduced policy that would aim to make this process as difficult as possible, creating a country that inhumanely holds these or those people seeking asylum in cages, separating the children from their parents, and even forcing people to wait in Mexico or in countries uh, with which the U.S. has formed asylum cooperative agreements, legally questionable agreements at that. Um, this means that people seeking asylum in the U.S. may instead be sent to places like Guatemala or Honduras and request asylum there, which are but a couple of the countries which people are fleeing from due to extreme violence or persecution. Um, these are the people yelling about how people should come to this country legally. We are a country of laws, you, whatever. But then Trump goes out of his way to change those laws and making it virtually impossible to go through the legal process without having your human rights trampled on. Um, on top of that, I think that 2020 has been the biggest red flag for this being the case with the president. Um, whether it's his handling of the coronavirus, or should I say mishandling, uh, or his dismissive, even antagonizing rhetoric and actions directed um, at those exercising their First Amendment right to protest police brutality, um, to me are very clear indicators of, of, of uh, Trump's insistence of a culture war between what he would call real Americans, you know, patriots, um, and those who are standing in the way of America's cultural and economic prosperity, um, which I think points, you know, is, a, is means white, you know, culture and economic prosperity. But, you know, this leads me to the next point, um, which is that of otherization. Identification of enemies as a unifying cause. I think that this is one of Trump's signature moves. In fact, there would be no President Trump if it weren't for the otherization that he partakes in. I don't think that saying that Trump prospers from strategies of polarization and division is controversial. It's just true. It is evident by the way in which he runs his campaigns and the manner in which he speaks, always finding a way to bring up the idea that someone is, else is to blame for whatever issue he's tackling or, t or talking about. This beautifully relates to his personality. He is incapable of taking responsibility. This creates a symbiosis between the, the, the kind of person he is and the way in which he runs the country. There is always someone else to blame, whether it be the Democrats, Antifa, the Mexican rapists, or China, but never, 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 never him, ever. What this does is, one, pass off any responsibility to everyone but himself, obviously, but more importantly, two, 
create a political chasm that forces everyone to choose one side or the other. Whether it's political or military enemies, Trump is exceptionally good at appealing to his voter base's sensibilities and getting them to internalize a certain resentment towards those that look, speak, or think differently. Now, this next one is really interesting. Military supremacy is but a single example of two aspects of American conservatism, you know, tone deafness and the celebration of violence. Shouldn't be mistaken what conservatism is. It's a political view celebrating the past and looking to keep tradition alive in the face of socio-political progress. When combined with a president who thrives off the division of the American people, it's easy to see why this way of thinking appeals to conservative voters, especially older conservative voters who have had time to internally develop these negative outlooks against racial, political, and religious minorities and are now given the green light to express them overtly. This, I think, answers for conservative tone deafness, which relates to the issue of military supremacy as oftentimes the conservative view is that the protection of traditional American values comes before individual lives, especially when those lives are those of who they would consider to be their enemies. The military is the easiest way to connect to conservative values as conservatism relates to the celebration of American history, which is often conflated or confused with military history. The view of American exceptionalism has its origins in the rising military power and political influence of the United States. This, coupled with the otherization that takes place in order to justify and defend military and political opposition, um, permits conservatives to be okay with the focus placed on the military in America, culturally but mainly through the amount of money dedicated to it in the budget, um, and its use of it in other countries. But also, as we have seen this year, its deployment to silence the voice of those protesting against the very violence that conservatives constantly justify, uh, solely because of their connection to these violent institutions and the otherization that prevents them from empathizing with members of communities disproportionately affected by said violence. Trump as a nationalist is almost required to tout America's military supremacy and flaunt it as a sort of threat to America's foreign enemies and those he would deem as domestic enemies such as America's anti-fascists and Black Lives Matter protesters. At this point, I'll be combining this early sign of fascism with another, which is obsession with national uh, national security, uh, as I think they are closely linked more so than the other signs on this list, other than other than uh, which I think is at the foundation of every other sign on this list. And thus, I will continue to mention throughout the episode. But it's not hard to understand why Americans often brag about the amount of money spent on the military like this. Socialism destroys nations, but always remember freedom unifies the soul. <laughs> to safeguard American liberty, we have invested a record-breaking $2.2 trillion in the United States military. It always has to do with national security. We have to protect our country from the violence and the raping brought on by hardworking migrants looking for opportunity and safety and who are foolish enough to think that they would find either of those things in America. And we have to make sure we place a ban on majority Muslim countries in an effort to extinguish foreign terrorism while ignoring the more immediate threat of domestic terrorism or refusing to label it as such uh, because the main enactors of said violence didn't fit the description of a bearded Muslim suicide bomber. That's my interpretation of Trump supporting nationalists and their views of on national security. Um, Next, we have rampant sexism. I mean, do I really have to go over this? On top of being accused of sexual misconduct by by more than two dozen women, uh, Trump's worst enemy, his mouth, has revealed to us the extent of his misogyny and sexism. We have heard men say this. You know, I'm automatically attracted to beautiful. I just start kissing them. It's like a magnet. You just kiss. I don't need to wait. And when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. Whatever you want. Grab them by the pussy. 
this. Although she does have a very nice figure. I've said that if Ivanka weren't my daughter, perhaps I'd be dating her. And this. I don't have a lot of respect for Megyn Kelly. She's a lightweight. And, you know, she came out there reading her little script and trying to, uh, you know, be tough and be sharp. And uh, when you meet her, you realize she's not very tough and she's not very sharp. She's zippo. Well, I just don't respect her as a journalist. I have no respect for her. I don't think she's very good. I think she's highly overrated. But when I came out there, you know, what am I doing? I'm not getting paid for this. I go out there and, uh, you know, they start saying, lift up your arm if you're going to. Then I then And, you know, I didn't know there'd be 24 million people. I figured, but I knew it was going to be a big crowd because I get big crowds. I get ratings. They call me the ratings machine. So I have, uh, you know, she she gets out and she starts asking me all sorts of ridiculous questions. And, you know, you could see there was blood coming out of her eyes, uh, blood coming out of her wherever. There are plenty other examples of Trump making misogynistic or nasty comments about women or even directed at women. Uh, most recently, he said this while attempting to appeal to suburban female voters uh, in Lansing, Michigan. Because women, suburban or otherwise, they want security. They want security. They want safety. They want law and order. They have to have law and order. And we're going to do great. And I love women, and I can't help it. They're the greatest. I love them much more than the men. Much more than the men. So I'm saving suburbia. I'm getting your kids back to school. Get your kids back to school. You know, we won that big Supreme Court case against your governor. So what the hell happened? Why isn't it open? Still not open? You know, we sued. We won the case. What are they appealing? She's appealing the case. Hey, governor, let your state open. Get your kids back to school, governor. Not a good governor. And you know what else? I'm also getting your husbands. They want to get back to work, right? They want to get back to work. We're getting your husbands back to work, and everybody wants it. Ignoring the blatant and uh, cringeworthy pandering, his comment about getting female work voters' ba uh, husbands back to work is very telling. Um, it, of course, implies that women have a, a place in society, and it's, it's not in the workplace, and that women should have husbands. Other than appealing to traditional views of the nuclear family and women as homemakers, is there any other implications for the future of the country? Well, not on their own, no. Progressive activism throughout the history has, uh, has ensured a more accepting society, but it will ha take a lot more for us as a society to regress back to the times of rampant sexism. But the president's influence doesn't end there, as you all know. As part of the executive branch, he has the power to influence and enforce legislation passed by the legislature. And apart from that, he has the power to make a federal, appoint federal appointments, uh, including the Supreme Court, as we have seen Trump do a total of three times during his presidency. Um, with the latest appointment and confirmation of o Amy Coney Barrett uh, filling the vacancy left by the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg, further cementing a 6-3 conservative majority in the Supreme Court for at least least a generation, and her vocal opposition in the, to abortion has grave implications for the future of Roe v. Wade. Trump does not control the mass media, as the next sign of, on the list uh, indicates. But along with his policies and stances on immigration, Trump's constant attack on the credibility and importance of the mainstream quote-unquote fake news media illustrates a deliberate attempt to delegitimize any and all criticisms levied against them. Even basic, reasonable, nonpartisan criticisms are cast aside as being fake news, an agenda of the liberal media trying to paint him in a bad light. This is dangerous and to me one of the clearest examples of Trump's deliberate attempt to undermine our democracy and its values. He's actively working to silence our freedom of speech and working to destroy the freedom of the press by making it so critical publications are seen in the eyes of his followers as illegitimate and part of a massive conspiracy to work against the interests of the president. 
How about when they give them the questions? That's worse. When he reads them off, they give him a question. This is the people I deal with all the time. They're crazy maniacs. I deal with them all the time. They ask me things that are just terrible. And I've been doing this for a long time. They ask me very, very dangerous, horrible questions. For me, it's his categorization of important questions as, as dangerous and, and horrible that gets to me. This man is incapable of taking responsibility, so his only resort when he's asked to, as a president of the United States, is to attack those who are doing their jobs and trying to uncover the truth. The nasty and dangerous questions he talks about are, are questions like these from back in April during one of Trump's coronavirus task force, task force briefings, um, wherein he took time to deliver a video in a rant against the fake news media and their deliberate attempt to lie to the people about the efforts undergone by the president to fight back against COVID-19. Afterwards, this exchange between the president and CBS White House correspondent Paula Reed took place, in which Reed brought up the fact that the video he presented had a large gap of time during the month of February, wherein he seemingly did very little in advancing the efforts of combating the disease, and in fact spent this month assuring Americans that the coronavirus was very much under control and that it would go away in April because the heat kills it, or that the number of cases would go down to zero soon or my favorite that it will one day disappear like a miracle here's that clip i saved tens of thousands maybe hundreds of thousands well, of lives that by time hurting. that you bought the argument is that you bought yourself some time and you didn't use it to prepare hospitals you didn't use it to ramp up testing right you're now, so you're so you're so disgraceful it's so tens disgraceful the way you say that let, let me just listen i just went over it I just went over in it. An unprecedented crisis. Nobody thought we should do it. And when I did it. But what did you do with the time that you bought? You know what we did? The month of February. That, you know what we did? What do you do? What do you do when you have no case in the whole United States? You had cases when in you, you, Excuse me. You reported it. Zero cases, zero deaths on January 17th. January. February. The entire January. Month of February. I said in January. Your video has a complete gap. On January 30th. What a lot, a lot, and in fact, we'll give you a list. What we did, in fact, part of it was up there. It we did a lot. Look, look. You know you're a fake. You know that your whole network, the way you cover it, is fake. Or this interaction with Weijia Zhang, where her corrections seemingly weren't being talked to like a dog. Many Americans are saying the exact same thing about you. That you should have warned them the virus was spreading like wildfire through the month of February instead of holding rallies with thousands of people. Why did you wait so long who you to with? warn who, them? Who you with? And why did you yeah. uh, not have social distancing until March 16th? Who are you with? I'm Weijia Jang with CBS News. So if you look at what I did in terms of cutting off or banning China from coming in. Chinese nationals. But by the way, not Americans who are also nice coming from easy. China. Nice and easy. Just relax. We cut it off. People were amazed. These gentlemen, everybody was amazed that I did it. We were very early. Oh, I'm, I'm the president. And you know what I just did? And you know what I just... And by the way, when you issued the ban, the virus was already here. Okay, and you know how many people, when I issued the ban, how many cases of virus were in the United States when I issued the ban? Do you know the number? There was... No, no, how many cases? Remember I said one person. How many cases were here when I issued the ban? But Tell did me. you know? No, no, no. You have to do your research. How many? I did my research. On the 23rd of March, you said you knew this was going to be a pandemic. Can I tell you what? Well, I did know it. I did know it. All I have to do is look. So you knew look. It All, anybody knew it. Just, are you ready? How many cases were in the United States when I did my ban? 
How many people had died in the United States? So do you acknowledge that you didn't think Keep your, voice down, Keep your voice down, please. Keep your voice down. How many, how many, how many cases were in the United States? I did a ban where I'm closing up the entire country. How many people died? And that's a fair point. How many people died in the United States? And yet I closed up the country and I believe there were no deaths, zero deaths at the time I closed up the country. Nobody was there. And you should say thank you very much for good judgment. Go ahead, please. I think Trump uh, being prone to being offended on top of his narcissism, another hint of his sociopathic nature, such as vanity, refusal to take responsibility, a disregard for his or other safety, and constant lying. He has made tens of thousands of false claims during his presidency alone. I think that is some of the more visible elements directly relating to his incompetence. Ultimately, there is no federally controlled mass media in America, but it is hard not to see this campaign uh, against the fake news media and his vocal support of news outlets that reflect the traits that Trump instills in his supporters uh, unconditional trust and blind loyalty and baseless accusations against those even remotely coming off as critiques or opponents of the president um, at attempts by him to take control over the media and for specific demographics it's working. Our religion and government are not intertwined and although I think I don't necessarily believe uh, Donald Trump upholds the values directly noted by Christians as being values that they uphold I do think that his views align with theirs in some cases for the same and in others for different reasons. Um, this is important because it allows him to pander to them by invoking the word of God and speak to the Christian sensibilities. But it is, it is this but is this creating a sort of theocracy in America? I really don't think so, but with him as our president, it is certainly bringing out the worst in us, liberals and conservatives alike. In the case of conservatives, 85% of which identify as Christian, according to the Pew Research Center, there's a growing belief in, in Donald Trump being America's savior. This is not hard to believe. I, I, I mean, it is, but when in relation to Christians in America, it's not hard to see why this is the case. Despite all the evidence from Trump's very public life as a business mogul, TV entertainer, and occasional WWE wrestler, we have seen him live a life that most Christians would not consider Christian. And even with that knowledge in mind, it is still so easy for people to draw connections between him and their Lord and Savior. And although I have no evidence, I'm willing to bet that it is mostly all political and none of it religious, which in of itself shouldn't be a controversial statement. We do like to think that there's a separation of church and state, and for the most part there is, but there is an undeniable connection between their religion and politics in our country. In fact, as is true for all other social groups, politics are a tool for Christians to push their agenda. It's just that it is much easier for religious groups whose political power seems to rival that of the Catholic Church in the 16th century. No, uh, but seriously, I have two points when I talk about the worshipping of Trump that is taking place in this day and age. One, that conservatives, especially those holding racist beliefs, felt lost, angry, and disillusioned with the political system all those eight years that Trump, uh, before Trump was elected, especially on the social front. I mean, even the fact that Obama was half black meant that the perceptions held by many that America's integrity as a white nation was under attack, let alone all the social change that was brought on. The expansion of LGBT rights in particular uh, must have been devastating to these people. Well, now we are seeing them focusing their sights on another issue, an issue that is synonymous with political debate and discussion, that of abortion and women's right to choose what to do with their bodies. And now with the confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court, confirming a 6-3 conservative supermajority, their goal seems to be closer than ever. And it's this 
this this leads to my second point, and that is that the rules don't apply to Trump. Republicans don't have it don't Republicans have made an unspoken rule that Trump's presidency is far too important for them to adhere to common decency. Nowhere was this more evident than with the appointment and confirmation of Amy Cummy Parrott. Back in twenty sixteen, after Justice Scalia's passing, Senate Republicans led by the ugliest corpse alive, Mitch McConnell, blocked Obama's nomination of Judge Merrick Garland, uh, stating that a sitting president shouldn't be able to nominate a Supreme Court justice on an election year, so they decided to wait until the next president was decided. It was a gamble that paid off. Now, we are in the same situation, except instead of the nomination taking place in March, like it did in 2016, it took place very well into the election in September to be confirmed one month later. This doesn't just apply to politicians. This mindset that President Trump is exempt from the rules is common among his supporters. In fact, it's almost a requirement, right? You can't be a Trump supporter without refusing to put him under the same scrutiny and observation as other people who have done the same things he has done. You can't in your pri- you can't in your private life preach one thing and then turn on that belief to, to defend someone desecrating your views because he's the exception to the rule. Except if he's Trump, who is practically seen as Jesus reborn, which is something that his followers all but say. Which gets me to my final point, which is that every day we get closer and closer to an America that Trump's following is pushing for, which is an America of religious liberty. The liberty to practice your religion without fear of discrimination of pers- or persecution, as long as it's Christianity. In a capitalist nation, corporate interests must be protected. Uh, for this section, I am simply going to present points made by Celine McNicholas and Margaret Poydock in an article titled, Trump's Corporate First Agenda as Weakened Worker Protections Needed to Combat the Coronavirus, uh, for the Economic Policy Institute's Working Economics blog. Quote, Using the COVID-19 pandemic as cover, the Trump administration is reportedly preparing to take executive action to repeal and suspend federal regulations. This should not be a surprise. One of Trump's first actions after taking office was to issue an executive order requiring federal agencies to identify at least two existing regulations to repeal when proposing a new regulation. Now seizing on the public health crisis and its economic impact as an excuse, the Trump administration is framing this renewed push to deregulate as a necessary policy response to uh, promote economic growth, focusing on repealing and suspending regulations that impact businesses. Deregulation has long been a central component of the corporate interest agenda, and the Trump administration has certainly obliged. Uh, While the coronavirus was not under anyone's control, President Trump's failure to establish strong worker protections during his first term uh, through laws and regulations has helped create the crisis millions of essential workers now confront every day on the job. The following are examples of how Trump's administration, a corporate-driven agenda, has weakened worker protections needed to combat the coronavirus. President Trump blocked the workplace injury and illness record-keeping rule, which would have clarified an employer's obligation under the Occupational Safety and Health Act to maintain accurate records of workplace injuries and illnesses. As a result, OSHA does not require employers to keep accurate records that could be used to identify unsafe, potentially life-threatening working conditions. President Trump blocked the Fair Pay and Safe Workplaces rule, uh, which would have helped ensure that taxpayer dollars were not awarded to contractors who violate basic labor and employment laws. Without this regulatory safeguard, more than 300,000 workers have been the victims of wage-related labor violations while working under federal contracts in the last decade. President Trump blocked the rule limiting the circumstances under which individuals filing for unemployment benefits may be subjected to drug testing. As a result, unemployed and workers continue to face barriers when seeking unemployment insurance benefits, including the more than 20 million workers who have filed for UI benefits during this crisis. Deregulation is often pursued under the guise that regulations are economically burdensome. However, even under the Trump administration, the Office of Management and and Budget reported that the benefits of uh, regulations outweigh the costs. Furthermore, failing to regulate or delaying worker protection rules risks workers' uh, health and safety. For example, the Trump administration delayed the implementation of an OSHA rule that limited workers
workers' exposure to silica dust, which has been linked to lung cancer. By delaying the rule, the Trump administration increased the likelihood of more workers being exposed to silica dust and developing silicosis. Impacted workers and their families are left to bear the cost associated with illness. I have previously played a clip of Trump bashing the film Parasite for winning the Oscar for Best Picture solely because it was from South Korea, not America, which points to both his xenophobia and his dismissal of art solely on the basis of its place of origin, something most consumers of any media would deem idiotic and illogical. The disdain for intellectuals in the arts that serves as a warning sign for fascism is easily made evident by Trump himself, how he talks and presents himself. He sounds like an idiot, and it doesn't help his case that he clearly gets his, you know, jealous and upset when his power or influence is threatened by someone much more credible or eloquent than him. This pandemic has shown us that this man doesn't care at all about appealing to reason and rationality. His opinion is then allowed to be perceived as, as powerful, as the voice of God, it seems like. Um, a, a part of being exempt, ex exempt from of morality in the eyes of his supporters, he's also exempt from any appeal to common sense or reason. What he says is true, and what scientists say about climate change, what health and infectious disease uh, experts say about this pandemic, and what policy experts say about their respective area of expertise is garbage. It's literally incredible where we are with Trump's face. It's to the point where they worship a man who not only demonstrates none of the qualities of the man they previously worshipped, Jesus Christ, but that also showcases the worst traits already associated with those groups of people. He hates being wrong, and he must be at the center of attention. This man is incapable of taking responsibility, feeling remorse, shows a complete lack of understanding of any given situation, and appreciation of his position and how much influence he carries, and he absolutely knows it. This is a strategy used by Hitler. His This anti-intellectualism was an important factor in leading up to the rise of Nazism. It's but a component, of course, but an important one, as a pursuit of anti-intellectual thought allows for more irrational or emotionally driven thought processes to, to take precedent, such as religion or appealing to one's sense of nationalism, which is then allowed to expand uh, through the delegitimization and eventual silencing of the press and our individual freedoms suffocation. If nationalist rhetoric isn't enough to unify a base of followers, then further digging into a di divisive nature of such a viewpoint of other by othering and uh, establishing a simultaneous supremacy over uh, and fear from other countries uh, or groups of people working up to this with the targeting uh, of domestic groups which have been historically marginalized like women, uh, making it easier and easier to trample over said groups' human rights, all in the name of protecting the country and its real citizens. Real citizens. Because painting the enemy as fellow citizens appeals to much, too much to logic and reasoning, and people would then start to question the legitimacy of other American status as the enemy. It's a reversal of enlightenment thought, and I can't help but see America be at a point of no return, regardless of who wins this next election. The damage is done, and not only is America num dumber because of Trump, it is less logical, understanding, empathetic, critical, open-minded, and much more divisive, illogical, all too eager to worship our president, automatically freeing him of any wrongdoing committed in the past or any committed in the future. Hitler was able to spread uh, his anti-Semitic propaganda and control uh, what his people thought through an anti-intellectual approach. It should go without saying that when a populace is uneducated, it is much easier for those in power to gain even more authority to the point of subjugation. Trump proudly tells himself as a law and order president, and the events this past summer have only illustrated just how much his vision of law and order is in direct opposition with equality and justice. I am choosing to not include any talk of the systemic racism embedded into our very police institutions, which are superficially meant to serve and protect every member of our communities, but in reality are meant to disturb and oppress, it seems like. I am choosing not to include any clips of our president spewing what could only be described as a rhetoric bastardizing the notion of social justice by twisting it to fit a white normative rhetoric or narrative. Uh, Trump is the enemy of the people. Look at what happened this year, what he said, what he stands for. That's all uh, I wish to say on this matter. Rampant cronyism and 
corruption is the next warning sign, and boy is a rampant. To start, you have nepotism with his daughter Ivanka and her husband Jared Kushner as Trump's advisors. Um, then there's the appointment of unqualified people to positions of power, essentially swelling uh, these positions to the highest, or sorry, selling these positions to the highest bidder. Here's a passage from uh, uh, David Halperin's article, 10 Reasons Trump is the Most Corrupt President in U.S. History. Quote, President Trump has given top administration jobs to blatant grifters. Scott Pruitt, Ryan Zink, uh, Tom Price, Diane R. Jones, and many others, who have engineered the administration's wholesale steering of policy and regulations to help bid a big, bad-behaving corporations from polluting, climate-changing, denying, climate-change-denying oil companies to predatory for-profit colleges. These individuals, before or after working for Trump, often took big-paying jobs in those same industries, and some, while in government, have grabbed a wide range of personal perks to enrich themselves. Meanwhile, six former Trump campaign and White House aides, uh, Paul Manafort, Roger Stone, and Mike, Michael Flynn and others, uh, have been crimi criminally convicted by federal prosecutors on charges arising out of the Russia investigation, ranging from lobbying abuses to obstruction of justice. A seventh, Steve Bannon, was recently charged in a scheme to defraud Trump supporters, and another Trump crony and Republican National Committee official pled guilty this month on foreign influence peddling charges. Worse, big donors to Trump's campaigns have repeatedly sought and received government jobs and go government favors from Trump and his underlings. Under Trump, government and the policies that affect our daily lives are for sale to the highest bidder. Then there's the issue of fraudulent elections, which is ironically one of Trump's strategies in delegitimizing the results of the election. It has been difficult for him to even say that there would be a peaceful transfer of power if Biden wins and continues to quote-unquote sarcastically say that he should get more than four years when re-elected. The way he talks about the election is more than just wishful thinking or being optimistic. He is intentionally undermining the democratic process by baselessly and disturbingly claiming that the only way he could lose is if Democrats cheat, leading him to spew false claims about mass voter fraud with people voting multiple times or through absentee voting. And again, there is no evidence that any of the claims he laid out are true. In fact, the opposite is true, uh, as noted by the Brennan Center for Justice. Quote, the Brennan Center's seminal report on this issue, The Truth About Voter Fraud, found that most reported incidents of voter fraud are actually traceable to other sources, such as clerical errors or bad data matching practices. The report uh, reviewed elections that had been meticulously studied for voter fraud and found incident rates between 0.0003% and 0.0025%. Given this tiny incident rate for voter impersonation fraud, it is more likely, the report noted, that an American will be struck by lightning than he will impersonate another voter at the polls. End quote. But again, anti-intellectualism in Trump's America means that Trump's world or Trump's word holds much more truth and power than fact, research, statistics, evidence, and logic. Then we have Trump mobilizing his supporters to act as poll watchers, uh, which many have reasonably reasonably taken to be uh, a coded message approving voter intimidation, which isn't out of the ordinary for Trump, um, having not so subtly told his white supremacist base to stand back and stand by uh, in the first presidential debate. All of this makes for the perfect recipe for a fraudulent election, which could be forced into a sort of uh, Bush v. Gore scenario, uh, ultimately resulting in the Supreme Court deciding the uh, fate of the election, um, which was fucked back then uh, and would e be even more fucked today. And, I mean, you don't need me to tell you that what the court would decide if it came to this seeing as three of the six conservative seats on a nine-justice court were filled by Trump. Okay, this was a very tiring episode to do. Uh, going over each of the warning signs of fascism uh, and connecting them to the Trump presidency was, in fact, too easy. <laughs> so much so that I couldn't help but feel shame and disgust. 
Yes. Uh, but before I go, I have to draw one final connection. Uh, that to the concept of a cult of personality, um, which is the idealization of, a, of an individual um, to the point of ultimate control through influence of the masses, through the use of mass media and control of the press for the promotion of propaganda. Um, whether it's the numerous rallies he holds or the way he has been trying to manipulate the media by over-exaggerating its corrupt nature while under understanding his, Trump has developed his own cult of personality. Like Hitler and Stalin before him, this charismatic leader has presented himself as the sole person who could put America back on track and fix any and all of its domestic and foreign problems. I truly do not know what to expect anymore. Will we see an attempted coup? The expansion of power to the president resulting in a realization of the unitary executive theory? The continued suppression of Trump's opposition? I guess only time will tell. But regardless of where you think this country is headed or where you want it to head, go out and vote. Thank you for listening to this. Not just to this episode, but to the show. I finally take some well-deserved time off from doing this and focus on my studies and work, which have admittedly been a uh, been little lacking because of this show. So hopefully we come out of this election a better America than the one we're going in. Um, wishful thinking, I know, but at this point, there's very little to be optimistic about. It's important to vote before I leave. Um, I'm sorry, it's important to know before I leave uh, that I fully understand that there will be some people who think everything I talked about is a good, you know, like everything that I presented as a bad thing is a good thing. Even if, the, you know, if even if they, if even they believe it to be true, you know, um, fake news and whatnot, whatever. And although I completely disagree with that assertion that these clear indications of an authoritarian megalomaniac are a positive, a social positive, we have to understand that their values and beliefs are also entirely developed or decided by the environment they are born into and the information and perspectives they are then exposed to. You can't convince a 70-year-old Trump supporter that Trump is a racist because chances are that that is precisely why that man supports him, you know? Acknowledging that people's environments will dictate their political views and putting yourself in their position is, I think, the first step to any sort of meaningful civil discussion to take place. Not all Trump supporters are racist, sexist, misogynistic, homophobes with sociopathic tendencies suffering from mental deficiencies, but they're supporting a man who can be described as all those things. Is every Trump supporter a fascist? I don't think so, but they don't need to be in order to keep one in power. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to vote, stay safe, and stay sane. God bless you all, and may God bless America.